This is Macro Horizons, episode 55, Dove Potion number 9, presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with John Hill and Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of February 10th. And with Friday, February 14th, quickly approaching, we find ourselves uncontrollably humming the tune to My Punny Valentine. Punny? Really? views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to make this as interactive as possible. So, that being said, let's get started. So, Ian, say the BLS threw an NFP and nobody came. It's my payrolls, and I'll cry if I want to. But on a serious note, the Treasury market was very willing to ignore the stronger-than-expected non-farm payrolls print on Friday, which is very telling. It's not telling insofar as the market no longer cares about labor conditions, but rather, I think it really reiterates this notion that the coronavirus has changed the game for 2020, and investors are going to continue to focus on developments out of China as efforts to contain the coronavirus continue, certainly far more so than the incoming economic information. There will be an inflection point, however, and that will come at a point when the virus has run its course and the global economy gets back to business as usual. And at that point, we will see pre-virus and post-virus data take on an entirely different character. Presumably, the market will discount anything pre-virus, and focus on the -the after-the-fact economic gauges. To some extent, we've already seen some of the biggest fears walked back, at least in the Treasury market, after 10-year yields got as low as 150. We've seen a sell-off that brought 170 back onto the radar, although that level in and of itself was never ultimately achieved. As we look at the events on the horizon... Yes, we have CPI and retail sales, but these fall into the pre-virus time frame. We will hear from Jay Powell, however, who gives his semi-annual congressional testimony, formerly known as Humphrey Hawkins, on Tuesday and Wednesday. It's difficult to envision a situation in which Congress doesn't press the chair about the coronavirus and the potential for a monetary policy response. At the end of the day, it's much too soon to look for the Fed to react to the unknowns created by the coronavirus. Record high equity prices continue to dominate the media headlines, and while we've been impressed by the divergence between the equity market and the bond market, it does seem, at least for the time being, that the equity market has a much stronger upward bias than we might have otherwise expected, given what's going on overseas, not least of which being the disappointing industrial production figures from both Germany and France. France recently reported a quarterly drop in real GDP for Q4, 
and with the broader Eurozone numbers due on Thursday, we'll be watching closely to see if the prospects for a European recession are now on the upswing. In a world with roughly $13 trillion of negative yielding sovereign debt, confirmation that the European economy is continuing to slow will simply reinforce this underlying bullish factor for U.S. Treasuries and to some extent cap how far 10-year yields will be able to back up in any bearish episode. So Ian, is 150 all we got? I still think we get 10-year yields below the record low of 132. The question is, does that come in the form of a move to 125 or a zero handle on 10s? A lot of that is going to be a function of exactly how far the coronavirus seeps into the real economy, how risk assets respond, and that circle that is currently being debated in much smarter quarters than ours. What I find the most fascinating, at least at the current moment, is the fact that we've had a pretty reasonable backup in rates. We have seen 150 as the low yield mark for the year, followed by a roughly 20 basis point sell-off. Now, we haven't even got to the point of a 50% retracement of January's rally, which would be roughly 173. And I continue to see 175 as a gift in terms of a buying opportunity if we get there. Nonetheless, drifting back to that 170 to 190 trading range in the medium term, is going to be a very important milestone, especially if there's any chance that 2020 will ultimately see two-handle tins. And in that world, how do you envision the shape of the curve playing out? So the initial response will be a bit of a steepener because, frankly, the yield curve remains largely directional as long as the Fed is on hold. It's not until it becomes abundantly clear that the Fed is going to need to be more proactive, provide additional accommodation, that we will see the cyclical re-steepening of twos tins really take hold. Now, that's not a Q1 story. It might be a latter half of Q2. However, there's still a lot of economic data between now and then, and the process of really trying to interpret the accuracy of the information related to the coronavirus. One of the things that we've been debating is how far into the rest of the world will the virus spread and will the contagion and mortality rates that we're hearing initially reported ultimately hold. That frankly is one of the biggest unknowns and with that information, which again we don't have, We'd be much more comfortable skewing the odds of 150 being the low for 10s or 1% or even below there. Now, John, you've made this point in the past that investors are debating whether or not it's the Spanish flu versus SARS. The Spanish flu obviously having much more significant dire consequences for the global economy. Yeah, that's right. Certainly the coronavirus is risk negative. It is growth negative. And generally, it's a headwind for expansion writ large. Okay, fair. Everybody agrees on this. The question is, what's the scale? And in my opinion, we're really not pricing a slight headwind. What we're trying to do is figure out the risk of something a lot more potentially catastrophic. Now, we're not talking about a zombie apocalypse or anything, but we are talking about a completely narrative redefining and reshaping 
of at least the temporary global economic order. That's a low likelihood outcome, one that frankly we haven't seen evidence of which to support, but I don't think is a 0% possibility. We're still trying to figure out how to control this disease, what the mortality rate is, and what the infection rate is. Until we have true clarity and confidence in the information about what we're talking about, it's going to be really, really difficult to price out that black swan sudden stop to the economic situation. In that kind of world, it's going to be hard to see 2% 10-year yields. But if that fades, if all of a sudden this becomes something more akin to a short-term outbreak like the MERS coronavirus, then frankly, this will be something that we're not talking about much in coming weeks and months. And we could go back to talking about the potential for two-handle tens. And yet, stocks keep going up. Yeah, it does seem to be that the number one rule of the zombie apocalypse is buy stocks, and the number two rule is buy bonds as well. We've been debating some of the more intricate moves in the very front end of the interest rate market, and as we watch the repo situation, I think it's notable to see the Fed's 14-day repo facility continuing to inch lower in terms of rates at a moment where one might have expected the opposite to be occurring. There's an argument, and this is not one that I will make, but every time we see a dynamic comparable to this play out, there's always the argument, is this the Fed engaged in some version of stealth easing? The transfer there being lower repo rates lead to lower LIBOR, lower LIBOR eases financial conditions, therefore the Fed's being a bit more stimulative. Assuming that this is not the case, this begs the question of what is playing out in the front end. John, do you have any thoughts on this? Yeah. So first of all, I 100% agree with you. The decline we've seen in LIBOR and the tweak we've seen to some of the details of the term operation, this isn't shadow easing. I still expect the Fed to slowly raise the offered rate on the term operation. In essence, it just makes it more costly for primary dealers to borrow via this repo facility. My best guess as to why they lowered the rate a whole basis point from where it was previously is they're just trying to build out the demand curve. But there's also a second order effect of they cut the amount offered in this from $35 billion to $30 billion. Given there are four term operations at $5 billion each, that's a reduction of $20 billion in term offerings. That's not too small a number. So maybe you offset the reduction in quantity with a little bit cheaper funding at that 159 level. Fair enough. What I also very much disagree with is how much this spills over into LIBOR OIS. That has fallen much, much more than one basis point over the period. And frankly, I think that there are two very good reasons for that to be the case. One, the Fed's still injecting huge amount of reserves, both through the bill purchases and these repo operations. So there's a lot of cash in the system that should tighten spreads. Two, we're still in a relatively risk-positive environment. Sure, the coronavirus is freaking everyone out a little bit, but, Ben, as you point out, we're near all-time record highs. If you had just told me that repo rates are under control, the Fed's injecting a lot of cash into the system, and we're in a risk-on environment, those all point towards lower spreads, and the fact that we got past year-end is just icing on the top of the cake. So those, I think, are the primary driving factors. The weird basis point tweak in the term operations is just kind of noise, and I think that eventually goes away in coming days. One of the other nuances, frankly, it's a bit more than a nuance that I think it's important to keep in mind, is the answer to the question, 
why do we care about the repo market anyway? When we look back during the financial crisis, what we saw was a spike in repo funding, but that was primarily a credit issue. Recall the situation with the subprime asset back collateral, as well as just the notion that non-bank investment houses were having trouble funding themselves. Fast forward to 2019, 2020, what we're dealing with now is more of a collateral glut than a credit concern. And this is relevant insofar as it discounts the importance of some of these dislocations in the front end to the broader credit conditions and financial conditions as a whole. Yeah, I think that's right. The Fed's term operations and overnight injections of reserves really are not the primary driver or even the secondary driver of financial conditions at the moment. The only way that I could try to build a narrative where they truly matter for general financial conditions is through the sentiment channel. We've talked before about how this isn't actually quantitative easing. It just kind of looks like it and kind of rhymes, but it isn't a true program in and of itself. However, if enough people act like it is quantitative easing, the risk is that over the past few months, financial conditions have eased more than the Fed wants them to. Fair enough, okay, stocks are a little bit higher, spreads are a little tighter, whatever. To me, the concern, though, is what happens if and when the Fed really does start to reduce its footprint in the repo market and does start to taper, if not end, these reserve management purchases. So stopping QE? Exactly. That's the sentiment trap that the Fed might find themselves in is that, one, they don't want to be doing QE or viewed as doing QE, but they kind of lost the second battle. But two, this is something that they don't believe to be influencing financial conditions. So we could see a Q2 tightening through that sentiment channel, whereby stocks sell off, equity volatility increases and spreads widen. Even if the mechanical flow through is really hard to explain, Animal spirits still very much exist, and they're a big component of prices and financial markets. So from the point of Fed credibility and the QE, not QE debate, it's almost advantageous for the Fed to remain involved in the markets up until there's a point in which the economy rolls over, we're faced with a recession, and they actually do need to do true QE. Yeah, and that's kind of how it's going to play out. They're going to taper these reserve management purchase program, say there's not a recession by June, which I think is fair to expect at this point. Instead, what they're going to be doing is growing the balance sheet to offset growth and liabilities. That's basically sterilizing currency creation. But they'll also be growing their treasury holdings to offset the reduction in MBS. Now, those are a bit in the weeds, but what this translates to is something like $35 billion a month in secondary market treasury demand just from those two factors. What's kind of crazy is that come the next QE program, Ian, you mentioned, we could be talking about 35 plus 35. And then you start to get back into a true QE program that is actively trying to suppress long tenor yields. Well, the great news is that by the time we do re-enter another QE program, we'll have the 20-year to add to the mix. So, Millennial, why don't you tell us a little bit about the Millennials? Thank you for the very kind intro. This past week, the Treasury Department did formally confirm that we will be getting the new 20-year bond beginning in May, and the details of the new supply broadly followed what was anticipated. 
The new security will be refunded once a quarter, followed by two reopenings. And while the settlement date will line up with twos, fives, and sevens, the maturity and the coupon payments will match with tens and thirties on the 15th of the month or the nearest business day. Oh, so just to be clear, the millennials will mature. Yeah, but not until the 40s. Like you were saying earlier, Ian, 20 years is a long time. So is two. The one detail which was left out of the formal announcement was greater clarity on the actual size of the offering, and for that we're going to need to wait until May. But as an initial pass, something in the realm of an $11 billion refunding followed by two $9 billion reopenings seems to make sense, and if anything, we'll skew that a bit lower, at least initially, simply to build up a liquidity point on the curve, if nothing else. Ben, how do you expect demand for the product when it first gets rolled out? Using our latest pre-NFP survey as a guide, it seems that the market's expectation is that demand will be good, maybe not great, but there's no broad-based concern that no one will show up to buy the new bond. Which is another reason Treasury will likely want to start auctions on the smaller side, just to ramp them up as time goes on. The conversation about supply I find interesting, because if we roll the tape back, say, two months, we had tried to identify a few top-tier risks going into 2020. Some have been realized, such as the Iranian tensions and catalyzed price action. Others, namely, we actually had a president who was impeached, Brexit actually happened, and 20-year issuance was rolled out, basically came and went without a notable market reaction. I'd be hesitant to say without a notable market reaction simply because we traded Brexit for a long time. We traded impeachment risk for a long time. We traded a potential for an ultra-long bond to return term premium into the treasury market for a long time. So the fact that the coronavirus has overshadowed some of these older, already accounted for knowns, as it were, only speaks to the efficiency of the treasury market and the tendency of investors to look forward rather than backwards in attempting to identify the most relevant risks. That's an interesting line of thought. And I guess I would ask you the question of, we talk about risks ahead to the point that they can reprice the treasury market. Are there any risks that you currently see that have already been priced in, aka if we get them realized, it'll be a non-event at the moment? I do think that if the coronavirus turns into SARS, we're priced for that. To your earlier point, if it turns into the Spanish flu or the modern day equivalent of the Spanish flu, we are not priced for that. And another known risk the market is priced for at this point is Trump to win re-election and there to be a split Congress. Anything outside of that, whether that be a Republican sweep or a Democratic sweep in Congress with a very left-leaning executive, is not baked in, at least at this stage. And to some extent, we are also not saying that equities will not be higher if Trump does win his re-election bid, but rather as an incremental headwind for the run-up in domestic equity prices, the assumption is that Trump will remain in office. The other thing that we're clearly reasonably priced for, and was an important lesson of 2018 and 2019, was that we will have a ballooning deficit and a ton of treasury issuance. The Biggest takeaway being that the amount of supply in the treasury market is not important in dictating the outright level of 10 and 30-year yields, even if it is relevant in the funding market as we've discussed. So I guess this is the part where I'm supposed to try to make a joke? A joke, yeah. Funny. Like, haha, Like a clown. Ooh, I got one. To paraphrase something we learned from this year's Super Bowl, tips don't lie. Thanks, Shakira. That's a real joke. Oh, God. <laughs>
In the week ahead, the Treasury market will continue to grapple with incoming headlines related to the coronavirus. However, there will be a variety of fundamental economic indicators released. Not only do we have CPI, core CPI, retail sales, as well as the University of Michigan's Consumer Confidence Survey, but we'll hear from Chair Powell, who gives his Humphrey Hawkins testimony, and that will be an important event for monetary policy makers to at least begin the process of framing any potential response to the virus. It's far too early to expect the Fed to lay the groundwork for cutting rates later this year, particularly in response to this new global uncertainty. Nonetheless, we'd be surprised if we didn't hear a variety of questions from both the House and the Senate on the topic. In terms of trading the Treasury market, we were looking for more aggressive selling interests at the end of last week with a target of 170 to 175 in 10-year yields. That didn't come to fruition, and in fact, what we saw was an interest in short covering ahead of the weekend dominate any of the positive momentum suggested by the stronger-than-expected non-farm payrolls report. As we noted, the economic data will be categorized as pre versus post coronavirus going forward with one caveat. And that caveat is if the economic data in December and January ends up being so strong that investors believe that even a higher than expected impact from the coronavirus will be insufficient to derail the economy, then we'd expect a bearish reaction in the treasury market from that. As we look at estimates for first quarter growth, the range between 1 and 1.5% seems to be growing in popularity. That certainly isn't a recession, but it does mark a decided slowdown from the pace that we saw in 2018-2019. In terms of estimates for the impact on Chinese growth, Coming into the year, many had been looking for a 5.9% growth rate for the Chinese economy, with those estimates now being taken down roughly four-tenths of a percent, leaving 5.5% as the consensus, give or take. It's unclear if that is going to be subject to future downward revisions, but for now, the impact on the global economy is expected to remain relatively muted a key clarification there being that anything that is taken out of U.S. GDP in the first quarter is largely expected to be returned in the second quarter, assuming that the global economy and international trade gets back on track. Let us not forget that we have a few key supply events in the week ahead. On Tuesday, we had $38 billion auctioned in threes, $27 billion in tens, followed by $19 billion in thirties. Generally speaking, the reception to the auctions has been relatively strong in recent months and quarters, frankly, and we wouldn't expect that to deviate anytime soon. This will be the final refunding before the introduction of the 20-year, so we'll be eager to see how the breakdown between 10s and 30s play out in that environment. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And with NFL season officially behind us, Sunday Scaries can once again kick off early. Just another nervous Sunday. Oh, oh. (laughs) 
Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email me at ian.lingen at bmo.com. That's I-A-N dot L-Y-N-G-E-N at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts, and commodity options or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.